Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Margaret Getty, who is a Stanford uh, trained physician, pathologist specifically, an award-winning researcher who actually was practicing, uh, worked for the drug companies when she first started uh, her job, but switched out of that model in 2004. And now she's in Colorado, really the home of medical marijuana, or the one of the first states to widely apply it. And uh, she has a uh, alternative medical-based practice uh, that's focused on holistic, supportive, and non-drug-based care. Uh, she specializes in the use of cannabis and is really an expert in this. Uh, and uh, she uses that to help her patients get healthier, uh, get off of pills, especially opiates, which are now killing one in every one American every 20 minutes. Uh, so uh, she helps, helps them do this and actually have a far better quality of life. So welcome and thank you for joining us from Colorado this, today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So. Um, it's interesting, we scheduled this interview a while ago, and uh, I'm just gonna put on my, my glasses here because I'm looking at a, I'm in the studio and I have to look at an LED monitor and just for recording purposes, it's better for us to uh, film this with, the, with no filters on, so I have to use my own internal filters. But, uh, so that's the reason for the glasses. But just, we scheduled this uh, at least a month or two ago, maybe longer, and uh, the day yesterday, the day before this interview, as we're speaking, uh, the DEA announced that they revised the Schedule One Controlled Substance Act and now have included CBD cannabidiol as part, even though as no psychoactive component, they've included it as a Schedule One drug. Perhaps you can expand on this and give us your perspective because uh, th this, to me, is a devastating piece of news. Yes, uh, I, it has been a real boon to have CBD available in really the past couple of years since Colorado and other states have started to grow hemp, which is an excellent source of CBD. And CBD is not only non-psychoactive, it is remarkably non-toxic, much, much less toxic than even over-the-counter medications uh, that are commonly used. So the concept of putting cannabidiol, CBD, on the Schedule One of, of the drug schedule, uh, <laughs> saying that it has no medical use and it's highly dangerous, um, is, is just flies in the face of, of fact and science and knowledge, and, and it's such a regressive move. It's certainly very disappointing. And what it means is that our uh, patients who live outside Colorado now are going to have to contemplate again actually moving, being medical refugees, to move to a state that has the substance needed because um, many of our families have been using the shipped high CBD, low THC oils that have been available. Um, and, and hemp has been imported and shipped uh, for a long time. Um, but now with this move, they're, they're not going in the right direction at all. They're definitely going backward. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's like a you know, hostile, hostile act. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, 
interesting, uh, but for just a point of clarification, it's still legal, like in states like Colorado and Washington, where this, there's state law that allows the use of this, not even just CBD, but the THC therapeutically. Uh, yes. It's, but it's legal within the state. So this new DEA shift is actually only for interstate commerce? It does, uh, they, they are going to apply it to shipments across state lines. Okay. Now, within the state of Colorado, Colorado has set up its own rules and system, but it the cannabis, THC, CBD, it's still illegal federally in any case. So it's only, I guess you could say, protected within the borders of Colorado. And uh, it, the Department of Justice had um, released a list of six priorities when the federal government was looking is looking at states with medical cannabis laws or, or just marijuana laws in general, where they wanted to be sure that a product wasn't being shipped outside the state, you know, a certain number of things where they wanted to be sure organized crime was not getting involved. And they said if the states would, you know, stay within these guidelines and not being create, be creating um, interstate crime, then they would stay hands off. So that's where we've been operating and having, and, and we had the availability of CBD across state lines, but now, you know, with of course the new administration and, and the new year, um, the DEA is not gonna allow the CBD to be shipped. And then we'll see if uh, the priorities of enforcement change at all. So uh, it's, it, you know, the, the fact that we can operate a medical marijuana program within the borders of Colorado, again, is uh, something that's controversial in some levels. Some, there are those who say, no, the federal government should not allow this and should go into states and shut these programs down. Um, so, you know, we're in sort of a, an up in the air time, I, I guess, when well, we're talking about enforcement. Me medical marijuana, Colorado is one of the first states to approve and legalize medical marijuana, if I'm not mistaken. And you've had the most experience of any other state. So I'm wonder wondering if you can comment as a practicing physician in the state on the impact of that legislation. Obviously, you're a bit biased since that's a big part of your practice, but as I understand, there has been no, there's obviously this, this is heavily taxed and there's enormous, <coughs> absolutely enormous amounts of revenue coming to the state of Colorado, so much, much more than they ever anticipated, I understand, and a big portion yeah. of that they're actually giving as rebates back to the, to the residents of Calif uh, Colorado. So, I mean, from the fi state financial perspective, it's been enormously effective, it, at least it seems to be as an outsider. Uh, the, uh, what I'm unaware of is how its impact on the social recreational use and if that's increased emergency room visits or had any counterproductive impacts on the, cu the culture society in Colorado. Hmm. Well, uh, let's see. So the, the uh, recreational, then the adult, legalized marijuana is that the legislation um so this so the impact of having recreational marijuana um actually i i think it has been quite positive in a couple of ways one is that if it's legal for adults to use marijuana then it's much easier for any person to come in and seek medical cannabis after uh it was uh, legal legal for adults to use marijuana in colorado we saw more and more people coming into the clinic who had never used marijuana before who just you know, because it was illegal, there would be the stigma. They just couldn't bring themselves to say, I'm interested in this or to admit that they tried it and, and it actually had helped them and that's why they were there in clinic. So uh, having the recreational actually has uh, helped to clarify the difference between recreational use and medical use um, in my experience. And um, as far as culture and society in Colorado, um, 
I, there are some people who don't like the number of, of shops. They've got regulations about their signs. We have green crosses that sort of indicate the um, the presence of a, of a cannabis shop. And so some people think there are too many of them and so forth. Um, however, I, I think it actually has made a very positive change in, in the state. Uh, there are uh, there's data coming out, I guess, year by year, suggesting that in Colorado specifically, and I think in general in medical states, once there is a greater availability of marijuana, the death toll from opiates, for example, does go down. And uh, we've also seen uh, some data that uh, there's less alcohol being used on the roads. So we, these are preliminary data, and some people would say, you know, this is too soon, or you can't make those conclusions. But actually, uh, we really haven't seen problems. There aren't uh, there there are rules against using marijuana in public, so people aren't supposed to be walking down the street, you know, smoking marijuana in any case. So things are really pretty um, pretty calm and uh, and going smoothly. And I think most people are, are pretty happy with the developments in the state with the marijuana availability and the laws. Yeah, because I know initially the governor was uh, quite reluctant and concerned to sign to this legislation into law. And my guess, it seems like he's sh shifted his, his uh, perception or position on this. Yes, I I think he did say he's he was, um, you know, concerned. He had some reservations, but he, you know, was going to, pursue it and see, you know, t take it a step at a time. And so having taken that position, then after having rolled it out and, and going through the steps, it, uh, I think he did say, okay, we're, we're doing okay. We're not seeing a lot of the problems that we thought we might. And it is an ongoing process of regulation going through the state levels and the local levels. And here in Colorado Springs, I have uh, the privilege and opportunity to sit on a working group um, in, in the city. Uh, for the city uh, addressing cannabis issues. And uh, so they're the issues that just keep coming up as far as what communities need to do to make it, uh, to make the cannabis available to patients, to keep the access open, but to make sure the community is not having problems with, for example, um, large home grows that cause odor. That's sort of a thing where people are growing their marijuana at home to use either recreationally or for their medical use. A lot of people find it very cost effective to grow their own. Mm -hmm. Met and uh, the biggest thing is that you walk down the street and you you smell the marijuana and neighbors complain. So that's like uh, one of the hot issues. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First world problem for sure. Um, yeah. The uh, you know I personally you know it's not actually it's legal in the state where I live or am a resident now, but it's only mm. used for medical uses, so it's not for recreational. There's not many states that's legal recreational, so I would never use it and do it you know, against the law because I'm too high profile a person. But mm -hmm. if, if it was legal, I, there is, I, there, in a heartbeat, and I'm, I'm really, um, uh, regenerative agriculture is one of my passions and hobby, and I've become quite proficient at, at being able to grow plants wildly thriving mm. because I live in Florida. But uh, I, if, if it was legal, I would be growing it and probably ingesting it a smoothie every day. Not that high THC version, but the CBD, because it has so many darn benefits. And to me, mm -hmm. th that's beyond tragic that they th this DEA, this, th this DEA shift came out, it just came out of the blue. I mean, I, I don't know anyone was anticipating this, and, and I haven't read any commentaries as yet, because it just came out within a few hours, you know, literally yesterday, late yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to me the obvious reason, there's the only explanation, because this is an absolutely irrational uh, mm -hmm. decision. An irrational move. Beyond, yeah. beyond irrational. 
And the only justification is that the, the DEA is influenced or controlled or uh, is a puppet of the pharmaceutical industry because the only one that benefits from this position because there's no justification in a rational scientific based system for this decision. Yeah. So and it's, it's ironic that cannabis was put on schedule one uh, with the statement that not enough was known about it, so therefore they were going to put it on schedule one. Yeah, which may have been reasonable, but probably later, which was, you know, what, what, that was never applied to any other. Was, and when was that? When was, was that put on for the absence of information? How long Things ago? Were only put on because it was known. <laughs> how long ago was it? Was it classified as Schedule One? I'm not even sure when the classification system was developed. Uh, cannabis. So this was back in the 70s. It was right okay, uh, 70s, with okay. the passage of the the. Um, um, Drug Enforcement Act, I think it was 1970. And, and, and there are those who, looking back at the history and what President Nixon was doing at the time, um, can rightfully conclude, and there were some quotes that came out in the news, I think last year, from him, from Nixon, back at that time, that uh, the whole point of restricting marijuana so heavily was to get at the hippies. I mean, there was a whole social <laughs> uh, battle going on, and they wanted something to be able to arrest people and put them in jail, take people out of society, make them non-functional. And, and marijuana was targeted, uh, you know, we're, we're getting into all the politics and the social. Sure. And, and when you go well, back and look again part. and again at how decisions were made, it's marijuana has been targeted. Like you said in the, in the introduction, it's just been vilified all along. And yeah. for what reasons, um, maybe it does too much, right? And, and, and it does have the psychoactivity, so people can kind of change how they think and, and question things. But when we look at cannabis overall, uh, marijuana and hemp combined, combine them and talk about cannabis, all the different cannabinoids in there. Uh, we know that it's excellent medicine. We know that it's you know popular recreationally, which of course competes with the alcohol industry and, and other things. So it's uh, hemp provides excellent biofuel. It actually competes with the petroleum industry and it provides excellent fiber. So clothing, it competes with lumber, which is uh, one of the reasons apparently why hemp was restricted earlier in the Mm -hmm. 20th century was was the you know the paper mills we hear these different stories so medicine recreation uh food and fuel and fiber so what else can do all those things it's excellent food hemp hemp oil has essential fatty acids it's high mm -hmm. quality oil and it has high quality protein you can actually live on hemp seeds on hemp well what, what i'd like oil. you to go into more detail is some of the benefits but before you do i just like to reinforce the fact that you mentioned when it was initially vilified in the 70s by Nixon in, in the DEA classification as a Schedule One controlled substance, that uh, it was a it was sort of a uh, way of getting back at the hippies. But just to clarify, you weren't one of those hippies because you were a conventional medical physician until 2004, which is literally only a dozen years ago. So yes. you, you, it, it's uh -huh. not like you were prejudiced or biased and been smoking weed for 50 years or 40 years, whatever. Me. So, no, uh, no. you know, you came to it. So I, I think before you go into the benefits and the uses of CBD and some of the other components, maybe it might be wise to share your journey as to why you shifted your, so obviously you shifted your position and, and your viewpoint on this because obviously you were traditionally based in conventional mm -hmm. medicine and you shifted. So why did you shift? Yep. I, you know, I was uh, trained in the idea that we're going to study molecular biology. We're going to understand the details of how cells work. And for every disease, we're going to design a drug. For every disease, we'll have a new drug. And pharmaceutical development was, was it. But then I did, I think it, it was because of working inside the pharmaceutical industry and starting to see how decisions are made. And of course, we know that uh, companies that are publicly traded for profit corporations, they're supposed to make money. That's sort of their legal 
uh, job. Yeah, uh, so what that means when things are being chosen to develop, it's not necessarily the things that people need, it's the things that will make money. And so, you know, it's sort of an obvious thing, but it's also a cynical thing. And it took me a little while to realize, wait, this isn't actually... Uh, this drug we're developing isn't really the thing that the people need. I wish we could do that one, but that won't make money. So I realized that there are, you know, non-pharmaceutical, non-patentable, um, more holistic and supportive options, such as uh, the things that I then switched my practice to, nutritional support, hormone balancing, uh, the neurotransmitter support with, you know, instead of taking Prozac, how about some 5-HTP? You know, those mm -hmm. are things that uh, naturopathic and, you know, alternative physicians are so familiar with and work with, but that was not at all part of conventional medical practice, certainly not the way I was trained. And uh, so I, it was an epiphany. It was a kind of a turning point in my career. And it, you know, was kind of a big thing to leave the pharmaceutical industry and open my first alternative practice. Uh, I had so much to learn, but that was in 2004. But that was uh, long before I realized that cannabis, that marijuana was medicine. I, I didn't realize that at all. And it wasn't until 2009 when uh, the medical marijuana program did start becoming big in Colorado with the administration that was new at that time, because people were very optimistic and, and figured that it would be uh, possible to expand. Um, then uh, at that time, someone said, well, you know, you're a doctor, why don't you see some patients for this cannabis recommendation? And that's only then was when I started to hear what people told me. I said, well, so this really works? This, is, this does work as medicine? And uh, for example, people with chronic nausea and uh, gut inflammation. So this really helps you? Oh yeah, life-changing, you know, day and night. So I learned uh, not from the books, not from articles, because we didn't have those in medical school. We didn't learn about the endocannabinoid system, which I'm sure we'll touch on today, so important. Um, it's not part of required medical education, but it is a, a very, very important system that runs all of our bodies. And uh, so when I started hearing what patients, the results of patients were getting, and realized that the reason why this could do so many different things in the body without being toxic is because it is acting through this natural endocannabinoid system in our bodies. That's when I said, wow, this is, this is huge. There's nothing like this in medicine. There's nothing I can prescribe that comes close to what this can do for people. So it was in early 2010 that I decided to focus my practice full time on doing the medical cannabis. And uh, so, yeah, following Following what really helps people, what people really need is what's brought me to, to focus on this. Okay, great. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your backstory because it helps give the, the, our viewers a better understanding of how you reach your conclusions. So I'm wondering now if you can really go into the endocannabinoid system and, and differentiate, you know, does that include the CBDs and the THCs? Is it all of them? And endo, of course, means within. So it's our own body system. This, this yes. is not some external component all those th these plants are doing is triggering something that's been in us since in since us. the beginning so since what the beginning and it's in all, it's in all mammals as yeah. well it's 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 an ancient system so so yes yeah, so this um so so the plants cannabis uh, makes these cannabinoids we can refer to those as phytocannabinoids plant cannabinoids. They do encompass THC, CBD. Uh, I believe there are about 60 uh, different cannabinoids that are counted in the cannabis plant, and we work with several of them um, directly in, in the medical program. So, uh, so the plant makes the phytocannabinoids. So in our bodies, we make our own human cannabinoids, and there are uh, two major ones that uh, have been identified and that have been studied now 
um, well, since the early 90s. This uh, endocannabinoid system was first described in a, a, a a science journal journal article, the journal Science, in 1992, uh, first described this system and talked about how key it was for the human body. So um, it turns out that the role of this endocannabinoid system, where we release our own human cannabinoids and they interact with receptors through all tissues in the body, the role is to bring balance homeostasis to each of the other systems. So the endocannabinoid system has a finger in every pie, and it and it has a key regulatory role. And so uh, there are endocannabinoid receptors in the nervous system and it's a very interesting part of this system that the cannabinoids are made locally on demand. So that would be a reason why it's been difficult to study. So uh, for example, what that means in the nervous system, we can think about uh, two nerve cells, there's the sending one and the receiving one. And uh, the endocannabinoid system works with that uh, sending and receiving nerve cell is if the receiving nerve cell uh, becomes too excited. Like in a seizure, you'll have uncontrolled electrical activity in the neurons, so there's an overexcitement state, overstimulated state. Um, the there is a the, the receptor can detect the state in the nerve cell. The endocannabinoid system detects that the cell is overstimulated, and then on demand makes these oily substances, the human cannabinoids and it's um, anandamide and 2-acylglycerol. So these are two, they're lipids, they're, they're oily substances. So again, more difficult to study. It makes sense that it wasn't, this system wasn't described as soon as others. Um, and, it, and it affects how the cannabis works in the body because it is oily, so it distributes to the tissues in a different way. So it has a big impact on how we can use it. But so um, on demand, the cannabinoid is made in the cell that's being overexcited and then it creates stimulation where that uh, cannabinoid, human cannabinoid, goes to the sending cell and it dials it down. So it says, okay, this cell is getting too much stimulation, so we're going to go back to the sending one and dial it down. And so it does this um, this process in, in every tissue. So as, as it's been studied, um, if, for example, uh, in homeostasis, bringing things back into balance so it can reduce pain, reduce nerve stimulation, reduce uh, seizures, of course, reduce muscle spasm, let people relax, let people eat, uh, let people sleep. So, uh, so that is, it, it is a very key system and then it totally makes sense why the marijuana can do so many different things. Why it, you know, it'll affect the mind, it'll affect the emotions, it'll affect the body on multiple levels. And that's, that's the THC. CBD does as well. CBD has multiple um, targets in the body. Uh, the system seems very complex. There are multiple receptors and it's uh, not known how CBD acts. It acts in a different way from THC. So there's much, much to research, but this is a very rich system. It's very, very involved in our other body systems. And those who write about this and, and report on it in the scientific literature, it's very frequently said, you know, if this were being looked at for the first time, it would be in all the headlines hailed as an incredible boon to mankind because it can actually work through this natural system and do so many things without being toxic, right? So, so many pain medications uh, for, are, are, are damaging to the stomach, to the gut. Uh, uh, the cannabis doesn't hurt the gut, it helps heal the gut. There's People are so relieved, they say, oh, this isn't gonna hurt me, it's actually gonna help my stomach. There's nothing else that does that. It won't hurt the organs, right? It won't hurt the liver, it won't hurt the kidneys, the ibuprofen, you know, for months and years. People can't stay on that. They can stay on the cannabis. And as we know as well, there is no known lethal dose for cannabis, whether it's THC or CBD. A person 
you know, couldn't die from it even if they were trying really, really hard. There's nothing you can say that about. So uh, it offers uh, so much to people on a, on a medical level. What about the adverse side effects, potential adverse side effects? Uh, obviously, it, their fatalities aren't one of them. People don't die from it, unlike what it is commonly mm -hmm. uh, used for would be opiate addictions, which people are dying every, uh, during this interview, there's gonna be two or three people who die, who die, yeah. and while you're watching this, there's gonna be two or three people who die, while you're listening, if you listen to the whole interview, from opiate addiction. So there is no toxicity, but, or fatal toxicity, but what are the, are, are there, some people are concerned mm -hmm. about schizophrenia, long-term schizophrenia, or psychotic episodes as a result of THC, or, I mean, I know anxiety is an issue and a concern, but that's an acute episode that's not gonna kill someone, and it, and it mm -hmm. resolves once the, once the effects of the drug wear off. So mm -hmm. perhaps you can address yes. that. Sure, the, the, the effects uh, of, of THC and CBD are very dose dependent. So this is a substance, these are substances that have what we could call a bell-shaped response curve, where there really is, uh, for, for most people, uh, what we could call a sweet spot, where you need enough but not too much. Mm -hmm. So for THC, in small, you know, appropriate doses uh, that a person might be used to taking, uh, it, it, it's relaxing, it settles the stomach, it helps people feel better. If it's too much, as you just mentioned, THC can definitely cause anxiety. THC can cause nausea, it make people feel terrible, feel like they're, they don't even know where they are, they're spinning. So that's the difference in the dose. So the right dose will be very, um, you know, very, very um, soothing and very helpful, very beneficial, but a too high dose uh, isn't. And so it's another uh, interesting and helpful property of the cannabis that it's it's self-limiting. In, in comparison to opiates, uh, it's you know too much, people don't like too much, but with opiates, there's no too high dose in terms of you know the sensations of the person. They'll just you know die in, in a you know very relaxed state, a blaze mm -hmm. of white light, I guess people say. So uh, you know the opiates, there's no point at which a person says, oh, this is terrible, I don't wanna do this. There always needs to be more. But with the cannabis, it does have that self-limiting um, effect. So yeah. we absolutely work closely with patients on the dosing, saying less, less works, you know, you wanna start with lower. And because it is uh, an oily medication and it does interact with the body in a different way, the uh, the cannabis can build up in the fatty tissues over time. So we get this buildup effect that's very beneficial. And I, so I explained to people that um, it's just the flip side of the fact that many people know that if someone needs to take a THC drug test and if they've been using marijuana, it can take three to four weeks literally to fully clear out that THC from the person's body, whereas alcohol and other drugs, they're water soluble, they clear very quickly. So the cannabis clears slowly, it also builds up slowly. You have about a three week time to steady state. So we explain this to patients to say, you can start at a certain dose as you take that same dose day after day, um, it's going to build up for three or four weeks. So you can wait and see where the buildup effect gets you before you go to the next level. And that's, again, so that they're not using more than they need, not having extra side effects. Um, the side effects uh, are generally the psychoactive ones. The, you know, with the THC, again, uh, too much could just make a person feel very altered and unlike themselves. And we always caution people about that because I don't like patients to have a bad experience so that they become, uh, so that they shy away from some of the more effective 
methods, which would include the swallow down edible dosing um, that has the longest lasting effect. But if the dose is too high, if the dose is wrong, it can be a very unpleasant experience. So that's the biggest thing we warn about is, is um, too high doses of THC that would cause impairment and you know very uncomfortable and happy experience. And um, the, the biggest thing is for people to uh, know their own responses and know, um, well, I guess as the, uh, it's to, to know uh, if they're capable of driving uh, with what levels are in their system. And I'll refer to the pharmaceutical package insert, the prescribing information for the synthetic form of THC, dronabinol, Marinol. Um, in that package, which is Schedule 3, uh, that, that drug is Schedule 3, ironically, it says don't operate heavy machinery or drive a car until you are familiar with the effects on you. So uh, that seems like, you know, a good, a good approach to it. So um, the, the, now, as far as uh, concern about psychosis or schizophrenia, so you can definitely induce a, a psychotic state with THC, where a person, you know, is disoriented. They don't know what, even who they are. You, you can do that. Now, that will be reversible. That is not a permanent state. It, it does clear out of the body and it wears off. Um, there is. Uh, there is research in the literature that's uh, been building for a while that suggests that young people who already have a tendency to schizophrenia who may be they they, they will be diagnosed with schizophrenia or they will have uh, an episode those people seem to come to diagnosis sooner if they've been using marijuana and so this is uh you know it's not clear at all that the thc has caused the schizophrenia or brought it out even so this is still under debate it's such an interesting thing when we talk about adverse effects or, or, or things to to be concerned about. Um, even though we don't have much at all uh, research into the benefits of cannabis, and we have very few controlled human studies, um, we did we have had 40 plus years of of a lot of money put into the task of finding out everything bad about marijuana. There has been a lot of research in trying to find out. Every, every adverse thing. And so we know that it can be impairing. People have to be cautious about operating machinery. There's this suggestion that it could bring out schizophrenia sooner, but this is debated as far as, you know, what is that correlation actually? Are people who tend to become schizophrenic, are they more likely to use marijuana? So it's, it's actually not a clear correlation. Um, probably the biggest uh, concern is simply that uh, in the developing brain, in young people all the way up to the age of 25, uh, it, certainly the, the cannabinoids act on the brain. It seems that THC can um, change development, brain development in, development in such a way that it would be later when, when a person was in their 20s that, it, that that person would have uh, a lower level of executive function, being able to plan and organize, and a little bit lower IQ. So this is the most recent um, place we've gotten to with that, but there are kind of battling studies going back and forth where one come out and say clearly uh, you know uh, young people should not use this look at this correlation with bad outcomes and someone else will say no look you didn't control for XYZ if we control this we see that actually uh, the reduced outcome correlates with socioeconomic status so really despite all of these decades of research into bad things the things that seem to be real that we need to be concerned about even aren't very clear. We need to know more about them. So uh, it, it really does come down to that. We don't have to caution people about um, 
uh, you know, again, hurting, hurting their stomach, watching for bleeding or, or watching their liver tests. Uh, it's the, as far as the cautions uh, for against adverse events, it really does relate to dose, helping them to find the right doses that give them the benefits they need without, um, you know, adverse effects of too much. And then just recognizing that psychoactive effect of the THC, especially for new users. Um, but when we get the dose right, it can be very smooth and, okay. and very uh, productive. All right, well, th dosing. thank you for that comprehensive response. I really appreciate it. Uh, it is uh, reassuring to know, like most um, herbal or plant preparations, that there is this intrinsic self-limiting feedback or that allows you or actually prevents you from taking too, too high a dose over time, which is the exact polar opposite of what you see in the drug model, which will, yeah. you know, especially with opiates, you know, you dive respiratory uh, suppression or depression. Yeah, a respiratory failure, even on ultimately. the prescribed amount, even a you know a therapeutic amount, there's right. just that that uh, you know that that um, therapeutic gap is just so small. Sure. So um, I'd like to ask discuss the CBD at this point, since prior to this rescheduling of CBD was legal in every state in the country, so it had widespread implications for everyone, and it may actually shift back because, as I understand, I was watching an NBC News report that uh, President Trump's appointee for the DEA is actually Walter White, who, uh, mm -hmm. from Breaking Bad, I think he was. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. the actor. <laughs> the actor. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It was actually okay. a Saturday Night okay. Live skit. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is that Trump may appoint someone who may override this ridiculous uh, you know, decision. Yeah. So if they, and if they do, and hopefully they do, because it just makes, it's, as we've mentioned before, it just makes no rational sense. So it is legal, uh, it was legal in every state. Uh, who knows what it'll be by the time this interview airs, but why don't you review in the indications and what you use it for personally, what the literature shows it's beneficial for? Okay, uh, and it, it is quite a long list because of, uh, you know, the involvement of, of so many body systems. So really, uh, muscle spasm and pain, the cannabis is a really good muscle relaxer, both THC and CBD, and it uh, goes into the muscles really well in a topical pain rub. The cannabis, again, because of its oily nature, can go through the skin into the tissues. So uh, muscle spasm, um, either through the topical route or, of course, people inhale very commonly, but the swallow down, uh, by mouth edible root uh, where the cannabinoids are processed through the liver and actually become hydroxylated and turned into uh, somewhat different forms. It's that edible root that will give uh, the best deep uh, relaxation and uh, pain relief and that will last the longest because we get these hydroxy forms. So, um, so muscle spasm, that <laughs> was the first one. Uh, so pain, just the pain signal, settling down uh, nerve pain, um, it does this as well. It can be used in those various forms. It does seem in general for pain relief and for uh, just long-term maintenance and management, the swallow down PO dose is going to be the most effective gives the longest lasting effect but we find the very best effects when people can layer their dosing and use a topical and uh, something quick either inhaled or under the tongue and also use the swallow down okay so we said pain and spasm um, nausea uh, THC is famous for giving people the quote munchies also for helping people uh, who are nauseous from chemotherapy so THC really in my experience has no peer in this way there's nothing we can prescribe that's as effective as THC for nausea um, people can uh, puff very quickly on a, on a vaporizer or 
you know, swallow something and uh, quickly settle nausea and also uh, improve digestive function. And it's, it's an interesting thing, again, when someone, uh, suppose they have irritable bowel syndrome and, and uh, just the, the nerves and muscles aren't working together very well. And so there'll be constipation and then diarrhea. Now, what the cannabis does is it doesn't, it's not something, say, you would take if you're constipated to make you go. I mean, it doesn't doesn't push a person one way or the other. Again, it always brings things into balance. So, I mean, I don't know uh, all the details of how it works, but what my patients report to me is that when they can swallow down their dose um, and and get the dose to the proper place, their gut function just improves. The dysfunction of gastroparesis even, again, where the stomach is not um, moving correctly, uh, it seems like the muscles and the nerves, just the function um, improves. And how is it doing this? What is the actual mechanism to get things working together again? Uh, it's fascinating and, and uh, much research to be done. But uh, so for gut, for nausea and uh, digestive function, for colitis and bowel function, for the inflammatory bowel diseases, um, that's a huge area for THC and for CBD, but that's where the THC um, really is, is important. Uh, we uh, know from, from literature and reports that cannabis uh, can help glaucoma, can help bring down intraocular pressure. And uh, we do see as well clinically that cannabis helps to normalize blood pressure. Now that's not one of the medical indications in Colorado. And if I could write a recommendation for everyone who had high blood pressure, um, you know, then, then everybody could get it, right? Or so many people. But this is a common thing where people say, yeah, it, whether it's, um, you know, there's, there's again the psych psychological, you know, and the emotional and the physical, uh, when you combine the body relaxation and the mental shifts, people talk about just being able to relax, brings the stress down. And so this uh, probably is you know, part of the direction about how it helps blood pressure, just bringing the stress down, the tension down, but it does help normalize blood pressure so people are able to reduce their pills. And that's actually one of the real cautions I do tell people about if they're on blood pressure medication and they add the cannabis, their blood pressure actually can go too low. So I alert them to peel back the blood pressure medications because the cannabis can normalize. Not for everybody, but this is something we do hear frequently. Uh, so that was pressures, um, seizures, seizures. Uh, we, you know, that's a famous indication. We have to be real careful with the dosing with seizures. I do find that that needs the most precise dosing, and we have found that CBD, the cannabidiol that's not psychoactive, it actually is. Uh, a bit harder to use for seizures than THC is because the CBD definitely um, can get to a too high dose where it's actually causing more seizures. So with the seizures, we learned this where we have to be really careful to be precise with the dose and find that sweet spot because if you use too much or go up too quickly, knowing that it takes three weeks to fully build up in the body, if a person, if a patient increases every week their dose, they can too easily just kind of blow by their sweet spot. And so with seizures, uh, we're real careful to find that sweet spot and then we can get steady maintenance uh, that way. And let's see what other things are on our list. Uh, the, in, in Colorado, okay, AIDS, HIV is, is uh, one indication. If someone has HIV, they can get medical cannabis and it helps in you know just numerous ways with sleep and nausea and, and pain and uh, also immune support. And let's see. So the ones that ones that aren't on the qualifying conditions list in Colorado would include uh, the more psychological diagnoses. So uh, THC can induce anxiety if the dose is wrong or the strain is not compatible with that person. But many many people use THC to re relieve their anxiety. Um, 
I, I can mention at this point that because we have just these hundreds of different strains of marijuana and cannabis, um, each of which is slightly different, there is a huge potential to customize for each person. So <clears throat> in addition to the cannabinoids in the cannabis plant, uh, where I mentioned there are probably maybe about 60, uh, we focus a lot on the THC, the CBD, and then I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about the raw forms, the THCA, because Dr. Mercola, you were talking about um, you know, maybe putting cannabis in shakes and that sort of thing. When you use it in the raw form, unheated, you actually get a whole other set of cannabinoids, which is, which are also therapeutic. Uh, but so, um, those cannabinoids uh, are not. Um, th that's one uh, range of variation in the different types of strains available. But there's a whole other set of compounds in the cannabis plants called the terpenes, and these are uh, ones that are in essential oils. So these are oily substances as well. And these are the ones that give each marijuana strain a different, the unique colors and smells. So uh, some strains smell like lemon, and other strains are purple, and they smell like lavender. And in fact, the same uh, terpene that uh, is in lavender linalool, and that's the calming, relaxing linalool, that's the same thing that's in many of the marijuana strains, and those tend to be the kind that are more calming and relaxing. So we have this uh, whole range of um, uh, range of strains where they're the, the um, more calming, sleep-inducing, relaxing kind, which are called indicas, and we all remember this now. It's a, it's a Latin name, you know, historically applied, but we say now that the indicas put you into couch so that we can patients can remember which one they should be looking for for sleep. So the indicas are not going to induce anxiety. They're going to be relaxing and bring down the stress level. The sativas are more stimulating and energizing. They can keep a person up at night like a cup of coffee might. And for some people, they make them paranoid. They make, their, make them too edgy, especially, for example, people with post-traumatic stress. So on the psychological spectrum, uh, the strain selection is very important, but so the cannabis can definitely help anxiety. It helps depression, kind of low mood when you use those uh, energizing ones, kind of the pick-me-up ones. Post-traumatic stress, so difficult to treat. Um, and uh, just uh, PTSD patients, uh, we, the veterans are, you know, a huge population. We see, we're in Colorado Springs, you know, there are mil military uh, bases here. And so we see a lot of the veterans who have been overseas. And not only do they have all the physical injuries, but they have those psychological injuries. And to see um, how much help they can get from choosing the correct strains uh, and being able to actually get the benefit of that well-known property of THC where it causes forgetting. So THC is known to kind of slow the mind down and you can't quite think about the things maybe you were going to. So for, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of settings, that would be a side effect, an unwelcome side effect. But when you have a, uh, a person, when you have post-traumatic stress and you have intrusive thoughts, to have the mind slow down and those thoughts just don't break through and the nightmares don't break through, that's a huge boom. So um, so that's another example of post-traumatic stress. We see a lot of good results, uh, but I can't write the recommendation for that. Sure. So that's just what we do in our well, consultation. Well, th there may be another off the list recommendation that I think has been shown in some research to be useful and that is for cancer. And uh, Rick Simpson, ah, yes. of course, a Canadian farmer, I believe is has a popular way of extracting it. He sells oil, but he actually tells you and explains how to produce it. So what yes. is your experience in, in uh, using cannabis to treat cancer? Because For cancer, it, yes. Not, not just the, that that's the nausea from the chemotherapy, which doesn't treat the cancer, but uh, yeah. I mean, it, it really- But the actual anti-tumor Yes, actually properties. tumor benefits, right. What's your yes, experience? Yes, and 
and cancer is one of the qualifying conditions in Colorado. That's the one I hadn't mentioned. And so as you, as you um, are referring to, uh, certainly people with cancer are going to find great relief uh, on multiple levels with relatively low levels of THC for their nausea, for sleep, for pain, for spasm, and, and for depression, for the stress and the anxiety of, of, of their illness. But then beyond that, which is sort of controversial, but actually can't be denied because of the research base that just keeps expanding. Uh, both THC and CBD have very well-documented anti-tumor properties that have been shown in laboratory and animal studies so far primarily, but there are some human studies, you know, the human studies are blocked almost you know completely in the United States, but there are studies in patients, uh, controlled trials coming out of Spain and Israel. And uh, in the laboratory studies, what we see is that uh, CBD and THC both have multiple ways of inhibiting tumor cells. So one would be that um, uh, there is uh, an angiogenesis inhibition property so that the tumors can't make their blood supply. So they, they restrict, restricts their blood supply. Another mechanism seems to be that it triggers uh, programmed cell death, apoptosis, uh, where it, and it's working through the immune system signals. So these uh, the anti-tumor property isn't a poison, like the chemotherapy goes and targets the cells and then they die. It's working with the immune system. It's working through our natural um, you know, mechanisms to go after cancer cells to, uh, as far as what they've worked out in the details of what molecules are being worked through when the cancer cells do die. So this is something that even the National Cancer Institute acknowledges in their article on cannabinoids and cancer. They do have a nice article up on the uh, National Cancer Institute website. They talk about all of those palliative effects and they just have a small paragraph saying there is some evidence that could, they could have direct anti-tumor effects, but much more needs to be known. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, there's uh, um, Rick Simpson, who was up in was up in Canada, and he has this very nice website, and he talks about his experiences making the concentrated cannabis and giving it to cancer patients. And the reason it it did need to be concentrated out of the plant material is that the doses to to try to shrink a tumor to get after a tumor are high. So this is the highest level dosing. And this is where um, patients really need to have a strategy to become tolerant to the psychoactivity of the THC in order to build the dose up enough without really being, you know, Adversity. completely um, beside themselves. Okay. And, and uh, uh, it has been a huge boon to have the CBD available along with the THC. Because, not only because the CBD has its own properties and itself is not psychoactive, so it's easy, easier to take in many circumstances, but also because of um, this very fortunate interaction that is a, a key thing I tell patients about. The CBD will literally block some of the high, the psychoactivity of the THC. It sits on that CB1 receptor, cannabinoid 1 receptor in the brain, and it shields it from the THC. So when you combine CBD and THC together in a dose and have them in a person's body at the same time, the THC is much easier to take in high doses because it is it's that psychoactivity that really makes it so difficult to dose up so with the availability of cbd what we're recommending now a step beyond what the rick simpson protocol was is that people look to um, get about half and half cbd mm. and thc and build up to the contents of what would be a gram of concentrate that rick simpson had recommended um, had suggested that, that would be a daily dose. So a, a gram of cannabis concentrate has about 800 milligrams of cannabinoid in it. So a person would take about 400 milligrams each of CBD and THC, build up to that level. And then that that's just sort of a suggested target, knowing mm -hmm. that those high doses are needed to push back a tumor. 
but that level might not be the best level for each cancer. So then what I advise people to do is to get their dose up, but then of course you have to track uh, the tumor markers or whatever the scans are where, where you're, they're following the tumor. And then if that one gram is not holding it, then you know if they can move it even higher, uh, then they may be able to stop it. And I, there is one patient uh, I remember very clearly who talked about using two or three grams of cannabis concentrate a day. Uh, and that is what um, did uh, push back and shrink his inoperable tumor. But at one gram uh, a day, it wasn't doing that. So we, but another person might find that, you know, 500 milligrams a day would be sufficient to keep their blood markers steady and, and uh, okay. well, conclude, be able to conclude there was no progression. That's good information to know. And I, I just finished writing a book called Fat for Fuel that focuses on the use of nutritional ketosis or teaching the body how to burn fat as a primary fuel. And one of the primary benefits, interestingly, our clinical conditions as users and targeted for is cancer. Clearly highly beneficial. And also uh, for the last 80 years, it's unequivocally the treatment of choice for drug resistant seizure disorders. So, and neurodegenerative disorders and, and diabetes and obesity, it goes on and on. But the reason I'm mentioning this is I'm, mm -hmm. it, it, it would seem it's targeting very similar diseases as, as uh, cannabis. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you've looked at the molecular biology because the, the reason why nutritional ketosis works is it upregulates mitochondrial function. It improves uh, autophagy and mitophagy and cellular regeneration and, mi and mitochondrial regeneration. That's the reason why it works. It would mm -hmm. seem that would be a probable mechanism of action to explain some of the benefits and actions we're seeing on the use of cannabis clinically. And I'm wondering if you've looked and studied the molecular biology from that perspective. Wow, actually, Dr. Mercola, I have to say I have not. That connection is something that I'm, I'm gonna think about. I, I, um, I, I see in my pediatric seizure patients that very often they are on the ketogenic diet. And so this is one uh, ailment where uh, into ketosis, just as you describe, uh, can control seizures. And, mm -hmm. and I have never known the mechanism. I haven't uh, dug into it. And I think that what you're describing there probably is related. Uh, we do see that that can be a very helpful diet, but then of course, um, depending on how extreme it needs to be, there can be problems okay. with uh, bone wasting and other Well, there's, know, there's ways to circumvent that. Let, 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 me, uh -huh. let me send you a copy of the book and hopefully that yes. that will give you a really good ground. It literally, I've, I've read Thank hundreds you. and hundreds of articles and dozens of books and speak, spoke to some of the leading experts in the world on this. So it's a speed course to get you up to date. And then Thank when you, you have that, with your knowledge about cannabis, I'd really be interested in your feedback on that because I think they, I think there really is a connection there. It seems as you're describing these benefits and the the, the tar clinical mm -hmm. targets, it's got, it's so similar to so what similar. nutritional ketosis is doing. There you go. I, 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 I would not be surprised at all. It would a wonderful web to, to sort out and, and understand how this is all working together. So thank you very much. I look forward to seeing that. Appreciate it. Okay, we'll definitely send you a copy. Um, the, we, we've really coming close to the, t the amount of time we've um, allotted for the interview. So maybe if you can conclude or maybe mention and uh, target some specific items that you want to highlight or reinforce or maybe mention something that you hadn't in the past. Uh, but I mean, brilliant points you're making, and I, and I really appreciate your 
uh, giving us this information and share because you're in the trenches. I mean, there's not many people who are in the trenches yeah. out there. And Colorado is the state that the physician you've been in the trenches the longest legally. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we really appreciate your take on this. And obviously, uh, the scientific bent and orientation you have being working with the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, you really are mm -hmm. grounded pretty well in the science. So, so why don't you go to it and sort yes. of conclude us, conclude, conclude it for us? Thank you. Excellent. Yes, thank you. And, and really, um, I do have that scientific bent. So in collecting the information from patients over time, that's really how we're learning where I, you know, every patient I say, what are you using? How is it working? Have you tried this? And then I ask them, uh, you know, what did that do in the documentation? You know, that's how we're learning. So what we're seeing, uh, uh, I, I think the thing I'd like to leave people with is that um, the CBD and the THC work so well together and this availability that we've had of the CBD just in the past couple of years, it really is historic uh, because medical cannabis has been primarily THC, almost all THC so far. And um, although it's been illegal most of the time, but CBD really wasn't available. So with hemp being grown now and hemp uh, CBD returning to patients, you can really use the THC uh, in doses um, that are effective without the psychoactivity because the CBD combines so well. So this action now, I mean, uh, we've been telling patients this this is a huge boon for everyone. Get your CBD, combine it with your THC. It's everywhere. It's not gonna, you know, it's not restricted like the THC. So having this DEA, DEA action come out really puts that kind of back on its heels for people who are not in a legal state. But here in Colorado, certainly we will continue to have the CBD and the THC and continue working with them. So um, they're, there's just, uh, oh, the raw. I know we have to conclude, but I no, want to no. say oh, so that okay. that's that important because, you know, at some point, <laughs> I'm hoping that it will be legal because I, I literally just acquired another uh, almost acre of land adjacent to my existing property yeah. and uh, I'm converting it all to regenerative agriculture. So, yes. you know, I could definitely grow some high quality <laughs> Quality, CBD. Yeah. I'm not interested in the psychoactive component, and I think there's a benefit for it. I'm not particularly interested in that at all. Yeah. I mean, you're going to get some THC. It's impossible to grow without it, but I'm really interested in the CBD and, and the, and the, the yes. related cannabinoids. And when the plant has not been heated, it actually doesn't have THC in it. That's oh, right. Properties too. <laughs> Did not yes, know the that. The plant literally makes the THC acid, tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, CBDA as well. Mm -hmm. So if you eat it raw, um, if you uh, put some marijuana flour in a, in a shake in the morning, grind mm -hmm. it up and drink it down, you get the THCA and not the THC, which relieves pain and spasm. It's, it's, it's uh, sort of it's energizing, but it doesn't have the psychoactivity. <laughs> Did not know that. So there's, so there's so much in it. Yes, and, and so, um, yeah, so that's, that's just a little tip. That's right. You can eat the marijuana raw and, and get health benefits. And there um, are doctors who are proponents of doing that as a dietary supplement. You yes, know, the raw marijuana. I, I think Don't it's... Don't heat it up. Yeah. My, I'm a strong proponent of that. I would vote yes. There you go. <laughs> Big Good. time. I yes. think there's so many hidden and unyet be discovered benefits of doing that therapeutically and probably related to this nutritional ketosis, the molecular biology of that perspective. Yes. And we'll figure and it out in a few it. decades, but you know, why wait a few decades yeah. when you can do it now? And there's no downside. There's no side effects. And even, really the psycho, even the yeah. psychoactive side effects that you mentioned earlier really are really related to the heating of it. And if you're not heating it, th yeah. those aren't there. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so here in Colorado, we're going to keep experimenting. You know, I, when I learn something new, then I make a new handout and I tell all my patients. And then when they come back, I ask them what they did. So we're going to keep on working with each new wrinkle oh, because there's so much customizability, so much to the plant. The plant just keeps on giving. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I really appreciate uh, your commitment to this work and all that you're learning and discovering and bringing it to our attention so that we can use this incredibly valuable resource to, to alleviate needless pain and suffering. I mean, it just doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's knowledge that you're creating that's really going to help change that. So thank you for all your work. Yes, thank you.